Welcome to a new conversation on the Retirement Wisdom Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Casey. Do you have a 10-year plan? Well, my guest today does, and she's 102. In preparing for this conversation today, I realized, although I've read many articles on living to 100 or more, and a great book by Andrew Scott and Linda Grattan, The 100-Year Life, this will be the first time I've ever spoken to someone who's 100 or more. And I'm sure I'll learn a lot and hope you do as well. One of the things that was in her 10-year plan was to write a book to share the wisdom and life lessons she's accumulated along the way. And she's done just that. Her new book is The Well-Lived Life, 102-Year-Old Doctor's Six Secrets to Health and Happiness at Every Age. Dr. Gladys McGarry is recognized as a pioneer of the allopathic and holistic medical movements. She's also a founding diplomat of the American Board of Holistic Medicine. She is a co-founder and past president of the American Holistic Medical Association, as well as the co-founder of the Academy of Parapsychology and Medicine and the founder of the International Academy of Clinical Hypnosis. Dr. Gladys lives and works in Scottsdale, Arizona where for many years she shared a medical practice with her daughter. She currently has a medical consulting practice, maintains a healthy diet, and enjoys a good piece of cake every now and then. She's also spoken at TEDx. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. I'm so happy to do this. It's a great opportunity to, to really expose your wisdom to many people listening. And I'd like to start with holistic medicine. You're known as the mother of holistic medicine. How would you describe that approach and its benefits? Well, I started medical school just as World War II started. You know, I started in September and the war started in December. So all of the, our training was killing and getting rid of. That was the focus, killing and getting. And that shifted into the whole process of medicine became killing the disease and getting rid of pain. And for me, it didn't quite ring completely true. I mean, I knew that was part of it, like a certain amount of it, but there was so much more to it because I'd been raised in by osteopathic women, uh, physicians. My parents were both osteopaths, trained by A.T. Still, and had taken their work to the jungles of North India. And so they didn't have any technology except just a couple of little things that they used, but they had all kinds of things happening to the people that they were working with that was healing. And I, as a kid, understood that. Somehow I knew that was vital. And so the thing that I could see, which was part of the sort of the uh, in the internal structure of conventional medicine was that the very essence of what it was was missing. In fact, as I was in medical school, I got sent to the psychiatrist twice because <laughs> I kept looking for something that I wasn't finding and, and the dean thought I was not proper caliber. So anyway, it was that inner knowing that there's something here that we're missing. And so when I married Bill McGarry, and then we went to Wellsville, Ohio, and we started our own practice, 
And when I began to see what it was that was really bringing the healing into the people, sure, we had to be there and we had to do the things that we had to do. But there was something that I really loved these people and I was able to get into in touch with things that were going on with them. And we were communicating at a level that that uh, had not even been discussed in medical school. So when we moved to Phoenix in 55, we got interested. Rachel Carson, Silent Spring had come on. And people were beginning to say things that was different. And as we got interested in that, began working and working more with it and got interested in the Edgar Casey work and so on, we, Bill and I realized that there was something that we could see was missing. And so Bill started a letter that was called Pathways to Health and uh, said physicians who were beginning to think this way around the world really began uh, subscribing to that. And so when we then had a group of people who were saying, how could we get together in a way that will allow us to have a voice? Of course, it took us two years to figure out how to spell holistic because the word that we were working with was the basic word was health, healing, and holy. And when we finally latched on that, then in 73, we started the real structure of it and the American Holistic Medical Association started. And I know there's no silver bullet that will lead to a happy and healthy life, but what are some of the things that you've learned that the healthiest and happiest people do and don't do? Well, the basic healing essence is love. And if we're in a life situation where we aren't understanding about love, we're going to have a really hard time working with healing because that's what I found my parents were doing. They were loving the people. And I knew that that's what we was the essence of it. Native Americans have known this forever. And even the Bible says God is love. Well, you know, if you're going to work that way, you better get some basic understanding about what love is. And so it was when we don't, I think most any modality that we use, if it's used in a loving attitude, in a loving outreach to the position within the patient themselves, then you're going to get some kind of response. But if it's, it's just didactic, you know, this is what you got to do. It may not work. It may, but it may not. So the thing that I think is the key and the essence of tying the whole thing together is that life and love are absolutely integrally what word work together. I mean, they, if you're going to have life and you're going to have a good life and you're wanting to live and, and all of that, you better have a lot of love pouring in and out of it. And in your book, you write about the contrast between love and fear and the tension there. Yeah, people think that fear is the opposite of love. And I don't see it that way. I think it's the lack of even looking for or understanding love that is the opposite of, because fear has its own use. <laughs> it's adrenal energy that has a lot of use, but I mean, it's a good thing. 
some places. And it allows us to set up, you know, well, the whole business. But so it's not opposite to love. So one thing that stood out to me in your book, among many, was the 10-year plan. Tell us about the value of a 10-year plan. Well, in my life, (laughs) there have been so many things that I've reached for and wanted to get done and so on. And sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. And I've found that if you make your plan too short, you get discouraged. (laughs) But if it's a 10-year plan, it gives you some reaching area, you know? Okay, well, I didn't make it this five years, but maybe maybe another two years, maybe I could make... It's the reality that life has to move. And as it's moving, it takes time. It's good to have that flexibility. Uh Uh-huh. So I'd like to do a little reverse time traveling with you for a minute and take you back to an encounter you had in the late 1920s on a train trip from Delhi to Bombay, now Mumbai, where you came across a memorable man. Could you tell us that story? Yeah, I think all of us have some times in our lives that are just so memorable that it it sticks. Well, I was 10 years old and we were on the train going to Bombay because my parents' furlough time had come and we were going coming to the States. So I'm watching as the train slows down at a station. And of course, in India, there's always a lot of great big crowds around. But this was a huge crowd. They were running along by the train and it slowed down. But in front of this crowd of people was a man in his dhoti and his larti, his staff, walking along very quietly and talking to people. But he came just right at my window, just outside of the window where I had my 10-year-old face plastered on the window. And he reached down to take a flower from a little girl's hand. And as he did that, he looked up and looked into my eyes. And as a 10-year-old kid, I didn't know what happened, but I knew something had happened. And I've never forgotten it because the look that he gave me said something like, my soul greets your soul. And the interesting thing about that is that about, I guess it was about 30 years later when India had its partition, my parents worked with Gandhi on a platform, you know, helping the people because they had their medical work that they could take around. And Gandhi appreciated that enough that he gave my mother a shawl as a gift from Kashmir shawl and my dad a punny put blanket. In other words, we exchanged gifts as a family. And it started, I think, when I saw that whatever it was in Gandhi. And now with time travel, I'd like to take you forward to way back when you were 99, not too long ago. And there's a story in your book where a man asked to help you carry groceries to your car in a supermarket and license plate. Tell us what happened and, and what led to that license plate. Well, let me talk about the license plate first. Okay, because I got the license plate on my car when I was going through a difficult, terrible. My husband asked for a divorce, and I was actually I was in the car riding to my home, which was empty now because he was gone. 
And I was yelling. I mean, I was letting God know that he really didn't understand what was going on at this dimension. It was just terrible. And I was really letting my emotions uh, show and uh, feeling it. And all of a sudden, I pulled over to the side of the road and I stopped the car. And I looked up and I said, all right, all right. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And I said, okay. So I went home and I made my license plate on my car read, be glad. So the rest of the time I was in practice here in Phoenix, my license plate said, be glad. So I'm having my, just had my 99th birthday and I'm feeling really loved and cared for and all of this kind of thing. And so I come to the grocery store and I take my groceries. I was just lifting my groceries up out of the basket and put them in my car with this license plate on. And a gentleman, elderly gentleman came up and he said to me, oh, may I help you? I said, no, no, I can do it. And he says, well, I'm 85. And I don't know why, but I said, I'm 99. And I just marched off from there and got in the car. And I said to myself, you nasty old lady. He was just being nice. What a terrible thing to say. And so I really considered going into the grocery store and apologizing until I realized this is the funniest thing I've seen in a long time. It was a whole comedy skit. Two kindergarten kids <laughs> vying for who was the biggest or the whatever. I mean, it was that childish energy that was just banging itself. <laughs> so one of the things I learned from my mother was that if you can see something that has humor in it, and make that something to, so that you can love with people and not at people. Then you could, the message of be glad is there because the whole process of laughter is so essential to healing and love and all. But laughter that doesn't have love in it it's cold and mean, but with love in it, it's happiness and joy. Thank you for sharing those those two stories. I read somewhere where you, you had said that you didn't find your voice until you were 93. And I was wondering, how can people find their voice? Well, that's true. I didn't really find my voice until I was 93. I was, when I actually, my early childhood I thought it was idyllic. I mean, I, we were in the jungle. I was having a ball. We just, but when I started school, that all stopped because I couldn't read and I couldn't write. The letters and the numbers went all over the page. They didn't stop any place. Nobody knew what dyslexia was, but I was a, a good candidate for that. And the teacher, my first grade teacher, decided I was the stupid one in the class labeled me the stupid one. So I had to repeat first grade because I couldn't read and I couldn't write. So it was just, I was a stupid one. Fortunately, I had two lives because I was in school, the stupid one. But on when I got home, my Aya, who was 
this ignorant, illiterate, amazing bundle of love would be sitting up at the top of the mountain there where I was climbing up to. And she would reach out her arm with her chadar and she'd say, Israel, come here. And I'd go over and climb in under her arm and her, and my life would come back and focus. And I could go whatever I have to do and get back to school. So it was that back and forth, back and forth. But I really, really didn't trust my voice until I was 93, in spite of the fact that I had written books. I had spoken, I had started the AHMA, done all these things. But in the process of doing them, I had kept looking for somebody to validate it. I'd have Bill read rising or have somebody else read, or I would, I would deflect what it was that I was saying. And so it didn't have the strength that it needed. It just, it was said because I needed to say it, but that's the way it was. But then I had a dream and it was a, in this dream, I knew it was a Sunday morning and I woke up laughing and singing. You know, sometimes in these dreams, you can be in the dream and out of the dream. Well, the part that was I was looking at was that I saw myself as nine-year-old Gladys in the jungles of North India, peeking out through the tent slap to see that my brother, younger brother wasn't out there because he would tattle on me because I was going to do something that I knew I wasn't supposed to do. He wasn't there. Everything was clear, so I ran as fast as I could to the mango tree, climbed clear up to the top, and I'm sitting at the top, and I'm singing. I mean, I'm singing. I'm singing the caterpillar song or any other silly thing that I could think of. And every so often, I look over my right shoulder, and Jesus is up in the tree with me. Because in our family, the thing was, we were not allowed to sing anything but hymns and pudgeons on Sunday morning. And I knew this is a stupid thing. <laughs> I knew so much as a nine-year-old. So anyway, I just, I didn't like that rule. But Jesus is up in the tree and he's laughing. And I say to him, Jesus loves the little children, right? He laughs a little loud. Yes, he says. So that I go back to my singing and then I get to doubting that I really had had that experience. So I look back and I say, I'm still a little children, right? And he says, yes. And so I went back to my singing. And so when I really woke up, then I realized that I had been deflecting my voice all these years when I really had a song to sing. And it was then that I began really focusing on what's in this book now, because prior to that, the work had been medical, even. Before this book, I wrote with Anne McComb, Living Medicine Beyond Holistic. So it's that kind of a progress that was going on all this time, but I was denying it. And I really wasn't denying it. I wasn't affirming it. And it was only after this dream that I began affirming it. So this is what this new book has been affirming. And I read in your book that you have a name for your wiser self, Dr. Gladys, and wisdom doesn't come automatically with age. 
tell us a little bit about what you've learned about how we can learn from life's lessons and tap into our own wiser selves. Well, if we can understand that from a doctor's perspective, from a physician's perspective, sometimes this story helps people understand. My oldest son is a retired orthopedic surgeon. And when he had gotten his training and he came through Phoenix, he was on his way down to Del Rio, Texas to start his practice. And he said to me, Mom, I'm real scared. He said, I'm going into the world. I'm going to have people's lives in my hand. I don't know if I can handle that. And I said, well, Carl, if you think you're the one that's doing the healing, you have a right to be scared. But if you can understand that it's your job to activate or contact the physician within that patient who is your real colleague at this point, that's the person you could contact and work with as you have done the job that you've, you're going to do, which is amazing, and then work with them as they do the actual healing within the body itself. Because each one of us has that physician within ourselves, which is what does the healing. The doctor can tell you what to do, and you do it or you don't. And if you don't do it, that's okay. That's your choice because we've been given that choice and we have free will. But if we choose, and if what the physician on the outside is saying makes sense and you feel like you resonate with that, hang on to it. If you don't, then go further. Look for something more that does. So there are times in everyone's lives where they can get stuck. You wrote that we can't thrive when we focus on what's stuck. How can people get unstuck? It's so important to understand that life needs to move. And getting ourselves moving helps us get unstuck. If we're stuck and we feel like, well, here's a thing. If a doctor has said to you, you really need to go home and rest, and you've taken that to being, you need to go home and retire and go just don't do anything, lie down and rest, you're going to get stuck. But if you can understand that doing something is, it is that resting is doing something. If the doctor says to you, go home and rest, okay, go home and rest and then get up and do something else. But it doesn't say go home and rest forever and ever. It's that reality that when we realize that we have to get moving if we're going to get up out of this stuck mess. And maybe it's just moving your feet. I have lots of things I can't do. I can't see very well. I can't read, so I can, but I have audio books. But what I can do, my eyesight does is not affecting my vision. So there's something beyond what it is that you can't do. And the vision for me is the perspective of, of reaching out. However, there it may be something that you just some there are people that are doodlers. Well, doodle, that's doing something. And it's a matter of moving, moving. If you're not moving, you're stuck. So just get something moving. Move your eyes, move your mouth, wiggle your ears, 
but do something. And in the process of doing something, figure out what it is that you need to really want to do or why why you're stuck, because there are reasons for being stuck. And you have a lot of movement incorporated into your life. Tell us a little bit about your daily routines and how movement is part of this. I have a walker and I try very hard to walk 3,800 steps a day. I started out at 1,500. That wasn't so hard. And you know I've increased it. And also for my 102nd birthday, I rode into the auditorium on a tricycle. And there's a whole message with a tricycle. It's an amazing thing. When I got to thinking about tricycles, it's a perfect example for holistic medicine. You start out with the first two wheels, they're body-mind, and they're there, and they're good, and they're connected with strong support system. And so infrastructure, this whole thing is good. But what's it going to do? You've got two wonderful wheels, and they're there, and they can go round and round and round. But until you get that third wheel in front of the two back there, which is you have the body and the mind, you get the spirit in front and the will and the purpose in the front wheel. So now you've got a holistic structure. However, that holistic structure can't do anything until somebody climbs up on that seat and sits down and grabs hold of the handlebars and starts pedaling. So it's that amazing story about who and what we are as human beings. I have this idea that when God created us and gave us dominion over the whole earth, we, in our arrogance, thought it was dominance. And it wasn't dominance. It was dominion. Dominance says, yeah, I got that. I, I could have that. I could do the domain. Dominion says, this is mine to take care of. And we forgot that. But you know what's happening? And maybe the COVID maybe woke us up to it a little bit. I think we as humans now are really reaching for what ET was, our true humanity going home. Within us is this essence of who we are as human beings who are created in this amazing essence of our very essence is. And it's been so exciting to live this long because not too long ago, I was talking to a, well, actually, I had, do I have time to tell this? Okay. I had a dream. And the dream was, it woke me up. It was a huge crash. And I woke up and again, in and out of the dream, I saw myself in the high Himalayas in a valley. And on one hand side, there was a young woman displayed out on the ground, barely breathing on the right hand. On the left hand side, there was a huge man, same posture, just barely breathing. And the information that came to me was, These two forces have been battling each other for eons. It's time to stop hitting each other and really realizing what it is and connecting. And so I had this 
friend who's a psychic, and she, we were talking about this, and we were also talking about the whole concept of manifestation. And she says, you know, I think there's another word that we really could start looking at, and that's femifestation. So we worked on that, and manifestation is Jacob's ladder. You get your degree, you go to, you do this, you buy a house, and so on. You manifest something. Femifestation is like a spiral. You can be on the fifth rung of the spiral and know what's going on in the second rung. But the two of them can't function without each other. It's like a pregnancy. During the pregnancy, the fetus is continually being femifested because what the mother eats, he eats, and so on. So that whole process for nine months, or you know, more or less, is total femifestation. But the manifestation starts when that femifested item takes its first breath and becomes a human being. So it's that essential love connection with life that is our basic humanity that is calling to us. And we've gotten it all mixed up and confused because on the the girl was on the right-hand side, and that's the masculine side. And the guy was on the left-hand side. That's the feminine side. We've been trying to figure this out. And you don't have to figure it out. You just get it to get, get your act together and do what you're supposed to be doing. <laughs> Very well said. I appreciate you sharing that. Last question, if we could. I noticed that you wrote a lot of towards the end of the book about energy. And what advice would you offer us on how to think about how to best direct our energy? What is it that really makes you feel alive and working and put your energy into that? Because it's different for everybody. I mean, what my son here is able to do to help me connect with you is, I mean, I sit here like a lump. I have no idea what he's doing. But that this is the kind of thing that when you find something you that, that you can do, and you can do it well, however well it is, and you realize that, that it's what makes feel like, yeah, this is right, and this is going on, then put your energy on in that, not what you can't do. But what you can do, it's there's so many things you can't do as you get older. And it's not a comfortable position necessarily. But boy, the things that have the insights and the things that I can't even imagine me as a starting out physician in medicine being able to talk to you like this. I mean, and so what's going to happen in the next 10 years? I, whoa, <laughs> it's amazing. We'll all have to factor that into our 10-year plans. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today, sharing your wisdom. It's a true privilege to be able to talk with you. Dr. Gladys, appreciate it. Thank you. Time for takeaways, actionable ideas you can consider adding to your to-do list following this conversation today with Dr. Gladys McGarry. Number one. What's your 10-year plan? Think back over the decades of your life to get a sense of how much can be accomplished, enjoyed, and pursued over that period of time. 
And think about it in terms of some of the six secrets that we talked about today, energy, movement, purpose, community, learning, and love. What's your plan for the next 10 years ahead? Number two, how's your tricycle balancing? I thought this really stood out to me. She mentioned it really is a holistic structure like mind-body medicine, and it has the mind, the body, and the spirit, which she also referred to as purpose. So looking at those three, often people who are planning for retirement or in retirement are looking to discover that purpose, or as I like to say, the multi-purpose retirement. So which of those three needs your attention right now? And last but not least, where do you want to shift and direct your energy? What are the things you really want to focus on that are most important to you, the things you really enjoy doing, the things that have the greatest impact for you and others? You might just find your voice. Thanks for listening to the Retirement Wisdom Podcast. If you like the podcast, we appreciate it if you leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. You can browse all the episodes at our website, retirementwisdom.com, across six seasons to free retirement school.